You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Darius Dale, CEO of 42 Macro. Welcome, Darius. Uh, A lot going on today to talk about before we jump in with Darius. Uh, It's been a busy day. Uh, The U.S. is currently deploying 3,000 troops to Eastern Europe amid the deepening crisis between Ukraine uh, and Russia in the region. ADP payrolls fell just over 300,000 payrolls in January. Here's why that matters. It wasn't priced in. The consensus forecast was for growth of 200,000 to 250,000 additional payrolls, depending upon the forecast you looked at. 10-year Treasury yields declined. Uh, All eyes now turn to the non-farm payroll report this Friday, and of course, to the next Fed meeting in the Ides of March. Darius, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Uh, Obviously, a very busy day. Give us some context. How do you think about what's happening right now in markets? Yeah, Ash, it's great to be with you guys. I think I short-sold lows of uh, Northeast weather and uh, packed up for uh, some some sunnier pastures for the next few months. So uh, thanks for having me uh, in from uh, from South Florida. But you know, brilliant trade, eating. Darius. A brilliant trade. Look, I mean, I try to. I fancy myself decent at trading. So let's uh, let's keep it moving. But yeah, let's let's unpack the ADP number real quick. Um, so we had the uh, year-over-year number slowed to four point seven percent. Uh, um, that's the lowest print we've seen in a few months, but more importantly, obviously, it was the big slowdown on the sequential uh, to down 301k. Uh, that's the lowest print we've seen since April of 2020. Um, there's a couple things that I think are important there. One, I think there's a there's a pocket of consensus uh, that very much believes the Fed put is 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 you know not necessarily where it has been in recent years, but not significantly lower uh, than where it has been in recent years. And so that pocket of consensus obviously saw a print like this today and said, hey, look. This will back the Fed off of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the more hawkish scenarios out there with respect to their policy tightening and their normalization drive. Um, Can you so that, describe that or characterize what that consensus uh, was? I know we we heard stories of, uh, you know, seven rate hikes, 175 basis points. What's your take on that? That's the hawkish view, at least. What's your take on that? And how would you explain that uh, to people who don't follow uh, monetary policy as closely as you do? Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the range of probable outcomes is is wide, but not only it's wide in terms of the actual outcomes, but the the whole entire sort of distribution has shifted right in the direction of, of hawkish uh, policy in recent months over the last two months. And so, you know, we went from saying, hey, maybe three or maybe three to four hikes to definitely four hikes, potentially five. Uh, now six is really being discussed among certain policymakers. Uh, if you think about Bullard's uh, notes yesterday and, and Bostic's notes last week. And so that hawkish right tail continues to grow in right. terms of the probability associated with that uh, sliver of the distribution. And so that that is the sort of kind of hawkish tail out there. There's still a dovish consensus amongst investors that says, hey, look, this Fed can't get up to, you know, wherever it's, it's sort of projecting from a terminal Fed funds rate perspective. And we're already seeing that price in the uh, overnight index swaps and Eurodollar futures curves in terms of having a, a fairly low uh, terminal Fed funds rate of, of, you know, 175 or 2% pick your market. 
Yeah. So that pocket of consensus is buying stocks today on this slowdown in job creation. Yeah. And by the way, we should probably say uh, U.S. equity markets up now for the fourth day in a row. S&P 500 closing up uh, about uh, nine uh, 0.95% on the day. Uh, NASDAQ up about half a percent on the day. Uh, obviously, some bullish uh, tailwinds here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, the bullish tailwinds are more technical than anything. And I don't mean sort of, you know, technical analysis like 200 day moving averages. I mean more like technical uh, sort of aspects of the supply and demand functions within the derivative space. Um, the options market dynamics uh, heading into late last week, or really going back to the lows of OPEX last Monday, became incredibly favorable uh, for, for an upside for relief rally. This is something we've been calling out uh, in our morning notes and, and, and over the weekend in our, in our, in our weekly presentations. Um, you know, so if you think about a lot of those dynamics, what happens when you sort of have these big sell-offs and investors rush to buy protection as they did into the, the most recent OPEX episode uh, that culminated with that big, you know, V bottom on, on last Monday, you know, that, that options premium, if, if the VIX does nothing, you know, it starts to decay pretty substantially from, from those levels. If the VIX starts to go down, which obviously it's gone down a considerable amount since touching just shy of 40, uh, you know, uh, last Monday, you know, that is creating this sort of what I call a Vanna chase, you know, this sort of Vanna dynamic where volatility compresses, dealers unwind their short put hedges, um, and the market tends to get a favorable boost from there. So that's exactly what we've seen, you know, since, you know, kind of starting last Friday and it's obviously carried over into today. That was further aided and abetted again by the fundamental dynamic of a slowing jobs market that may, you know, back off uh, some traders from their expectations of tighter policy. Darius, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask Vanna. So, second order Greek jargon alert. Give us the context for what it means. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll start by saying I'm certainly no uh, options expert. There are much uh, smarter people on this, and I continue to be educated by obviously Jim Carson over Kai Volatility, Brent Kachuba over at Spot Gamma, Imran Laka over at Option Insight. Those guys definitely go check out their work because I, I, I learned a tremendous amount from them. But in terms of my understanding of these dynamics, when volatility compresses, Dealers have to dealers have the opportunity as a function of you know sort of being um, you know particularly whenever they're short gamma um, they t have an opportunity to cover a lot of their hedges um, in the in the in their delta hedges in the underlying um, securities particularly the index options uh, where they, they they were sort of heavily um, you know puts were heavily bought um, into that decline and so they're now unwinding those hedges and the act of unwinding those hedges creates a bid a persistent bid uh, in the market that ultimately gets sort of um, you know kind of that, that filters through into other asset classes clearly. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you uh, about something else uh, that you've been talking about here on Real Vision and elsewhere. I want to give you the opportunity, Darius, to do a little bit of an end zone dance uh, on your forecast on peak supply chain disruption. Uh, Tell yes. us a little bit about that because you were ahead of the curve on this. Yeah, absolutely. So we start to see this in our in our data and, and company commentary going back uh, to November. Uh, it looked like supply chain disruptions were in fact peaking in that month, and we started to call it out and say, "Hey, look, some of the indicators that we watch and, and study." Um, to give us a, a real-time view on supply chain disruptions, namely the Baltic Dry Index, the ISM uh, supplier delivery times uh, components, and all the subcomponents within those uh, subcomponents. You know, those are actually starting to peak and roll over. And we actually got that data uh, yesterday, the most recent uh, update for the month of January, 
the ISM, the percentage of respondents in the ISM manufacturing survey that actually ticked down to 34.4. That's the lowest print we've seen since November of 20. So we're seeing this in auto sales, massive jump in auto sales in the month of January, um, to plus 2.6 million to a SAR of 15 million. That's the highest SAR we've seen since June of 21 and the fastest you know, increase acceleration we've seen since May of 2020. This is seasonal, saw- seasonally adjusted annualized rate. Yeah, exactly. So effectively buying 15 million cars on, on an annualized basis. And so we saw that in GM's uh, numbers. You know, we saw that in Apple's uh, commentary last week. And I suspect, uh, you know, as we progress throughout the first half of this year, we're going to see increasing company commentary around the amelioration of supply chain disruptions, particularly when we get past the peak impact of Omicron, because Omicron is clearly having an economic impact, um, as evidenced by the ADP data, uh, as evidenced by, you know, the consumer confidence data and some of the business confidence data we're receiving from from not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy in uh, for the month of January and in early uh, preliminary reads for the month of February. But we're going to get past that. And as we get past that, it's a positive tailwind for growth at the margin, and it's a headwind for inflation at the margin. Um, so you could get this sort of bounce, um, you know, sort of bouncing growth, you know, starting in February, March, and you could get this sort of accelerated decline in inflation, you know, kind of starting in that same time frame. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned the Baltic Dry Index, obviously uh, a measure of uh, of shipping traffic. I wanted to hit a clip here from uh, a show that came on Real Vision today. It's Matt McCleary interviewing Jay Minsamer uh, on Real Vision today, available on the Essential Plus and Pro tier. Uh, it's called "It's Time to Talk About Global Shipping and Scarcity Value." Let's take a look at the clip. You know, a year ago, folks were asking yeah. about inflation, and I said, "Look, if you're, I'm not scared of hyperinflation." I'm not saying, you know, we're going to be like Zimbabwe or something, but I have been a little bit concerned about inflationary pressures. And I've told folks, look, if there's going to be runaway inflation of any kind, shipping is like the best place to be. You're talking about real solid assets that are a commodity. What happens when inflation goes on, right? Commodities track inflation. The value of a hard asset follows inflation. And if your debt is fixed, right, the real value of your debt goes down. So if your value of your asset goes up and your debt goes down, your, your equity returns could be exponential. And, you know, I, I, again, I'm not one of those guys that says there's going to be hyperinflation for, for several years. But if you are worried about inflation, you know, I think shipping is one of the best places to be. Well, there you have it. Super interesting context around the shipping trade, something I didn't know about myself. But big picture, Darius, uh, he's talking about this as an inflation trade, a commodities trade. To that point, Darius, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so if you, uh, so I'll start by saying, um, you know, I think the the title of the video was, you know, this is time to talk about shipping. I would argue it's probably time to talk about shipping a year ago. Not saying that he's wrong. I'm, I'm not uh, questioning his, his, his thesis, but you know, shipping has outperformed the S and P. If you look at the selective, I want to say selective global shipping index, it's up 80 percent on a year over year basis, 84 percent on a year over year basis, and that obviously is about four x or a little bit more than four x what the S and P 500 itself has done. So clearly, demonstrable performance has obviously been met with some very improving fundamentals. Now, the problem with those fundamentals is they're not necessarily secular. Um, investors have been burned many a times in, in cycles before in terms of overbuilding capacity in this particular space. And so I don't know that, that you know, understanding that a lot of these dynamics are you know, sort of impulse related to aggressive fiscal stimulus in the U.S. and other pockets of the world during COVID that might not actually uh, come to fruition or, or be, be sort of um, repeat orders as we progress throughout 2022 and 2023. So that makes this a, a little bit uh, tougher of a trade to get into at this particular juncture. But I will say this. I wouldn't necessarily uh, view uh, shipping as a, as an inflation uh, hedge. In our opinion, at least according to our models, it's, it's a better deflation hedge. 
Um, it's, it tends to be a lower beta sector that outperforms both the market and, 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 and anything, you know, cyclical um, from a high beta cyclical perspective, uh, whenever you're in deflation uh, and, and what we call deflation is that's when growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously. That tends to be much higher volatility, rising credit spreads, uh, equity returns tend to be negative, um, particularly when that, that deflation, the deltas on growth and inflation are, are, are large in magnitude. Talking of which, uh, what are your thoughts on the gold trade? I know you've been uh, looking into that. Oh, I'm an idiot on gold, man. I got nothing for you. <laughs> I wish I had it. I mean, gold has certainly confounded me. Uh, I mean, it's one of the places you're going to want to. Or you, let me start. It's one of the places you should be flowing assets to in anticipation of a deflation trade uh, morphing, um, really materializing, in our opinion, you know, uh, later this year. Um, again, I, I, our, our target on that is still sort of springtime. Uh, when you would likely see sort of um, you know real pickup in cross asset volatility that could potentially persist in trend, because um, again uh, it's our view and we very much disagree with the pocket of consensus uh, that we uh, highlighted earlier at the show. Uh, with that pocket of consensus, I think the Fed put is, is not significantly lower uh, than from where it has been in recent years. They, they believe that this is a Fed that is you know overly concerned about financial conditions and overly concerned about the growth outlook. And therefore, you know, if we start to see a tightening of financial conditions, um, you know, that'll be quick to back off and quick to pivot. Um, it is our interpretation that based on the tightness in the labor market, and this is something I've been talking about on this program for several months now, uh, based on the tightness in the labor market and based on the stickiness of inflation, even though inflation is likely to be um, decelerating, you know, starting in, in, you know, kind of in the January, February period, we might get one more month of acceleration, but starting in February, more than likely, we'll see inflation decelerating, even though it's decelerating. It'll be high and sticky, and, and more importantly, at every interval that the Fed will have a decision to make with respect to hiking interest rates and/or uh, commencing its quantitative tightening program, inflation is likely to be above their target. So you'll have both of their dual mandates not only being met, but also being met to a threatening degree that actually threatens the broader business cycle. Uh, don't forget, one of the charts I, I sent you, uh, Brad Brian, is a chart that shows the unemployment rate relative to the Fed funds rate. And this is data we have going back to the 70s um, in terms of the Fed funds rate. And you know, as you can see by those black dotted lines in that chart, we have never, the Fed has never been this behind the curve. This is the latest they've ever been with respect to the labor market cycle um, in terms of you know, initiating a tightening regime. Um, you know, the, the unemployment rate being where it is at 3.9%. Right. Uh, and so the, to me, I think that's a that's a scary situation as it relates to, you know, the 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 yield curve is signaling, hey, look, we're heading into a growth slowdown already. You're probably going to make this worse by tightening. And I think we, as investors, should be would be very remiss to put a lot of faith in this Fed's ability to sort of you know thread that needle. I mean, this is the same right. Fed that a year ago was telling us there was no going to be no inflation. And so now this is the same Fed that's telling us today that there's don't worry about the growth outlook. And to me, I'm a little bit nervous about that. Yeah, and also the same Fed that told us that inflation was transitory just a few months yeah. ago after uh, retiring that word. After retiring, yeah, exactly. Choice so. of, uh, of Chair Powell. But listen, you know, this speaks to something that we've talked about here on this show and elsewhere on Real Vision, which is this notion about how the Fed is trying to thread this line between the Scylla and Charybdis here. They've got this challenge on both sides of the dual mandate. Uh, and so it's probably not surprising to see uh, what we see on that chart, which is kind of uncharted waters uh, in terms of the ability to, uh, to, 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 to fix these challenges. Challenges that they have. How do you how do you balance this out when things are going wrong on both sides of the dual mandate? Yeah, no, I think they. I think Jay Powell gave you a clear indication of how they plan to balance it out, which is do more than the market potentially expects, 
or at the bare minimum, condition the market for them potentially doing more. I think the the side that the, they're erring on the side of doing more, not less, in our opinion. I think that's become very clear, um, certainly to the, the overnight index swaps market and the euro dollar market may not have got, become clear to everybody participating in the cryptocurrency space or in the equity market, but it's certainly clear to rates traders and then money market traders. Um, it'll become very clear to everyone in risk assets once the Fed starts to shrink its balance sheet. And as we heard from Jay Powell last week, that could commence as soon as April. Like we were always out there with this July, right. you know, set it and forget it quantitative tightening program that could start as soon as is as, as, as April. And, and you know, a lot of investors, Joseph Wong, uh, Alfonso Pecatiel, have done a tremendous amount of work on what it actually means to act for the Fed to shrink its balance sheet because it's not just this sort of you know dynamic. It's not just this behavioral dynamic where people get bearish because the Fed balance sheet chart is going down. No, there's a lot of actual technical factors that are contributing to a reduction in financial leverage and a tightening of financial conditions as well behind the scenes. So um, that's going to be a problem in our opinion. Um, and we, you know, it's it's not our it's our view that this Fed will, does not have an off ramp from its policy normalization agenda until the labor market starts to stumble because inflation won't slow fast enough. In terms of getting to a, a you know at or near target uh, rate, you know, in terms of the next kind of several quarters, and so the the, the only thing that, in our opinion, that could back them off is either a sort of backup in the unemployment rate that is of of consequence, or more importantly, a steep drawdown in the equity market or big blowout in credit spreads that tighten financial conditions. But it's our job as investors, Ash, right, is to front run. The big blowout in credit spreads or the big drawdown in the equity market. So we can't use that as our as our as our proxy for okay, the Fed's about to pivot dovish right. because then we'll have lost money. And so understanding that is the thing we're trying to forecast. We have to look at the other things, and the other things won't change quickly enough before that potential before the main thing could change. So to me, I think that's the big risk of investors face this year is a Fed that is, I wouldn't say on autopilot. But they just don't have an off ramp from this policy normalization uh, drive for several quarters, and that's a that's a couple of careers away as it relates to managing risk in this market. Right, but let me ask you this, Darius. You talk about the normalization uh, of you talk about uh, the normalization of uh, of the uh, unemployment rate, but is that really the best proxy? It seems like we're we're seeing this breakdown in historical correlations. We're seeing this fragmentation of the labor picture. Uh, you know, the uh, unemployment rate is normalized. Uh, you've got these really uh, positive jolts numbers: four point three million uh, for the month of December, off just a little bit from four point five million in November. These are huge numbers. Uh, a one million print on the jolts report for quits was considered very high. Just you know, whatever. Uh, two years ago, those were extraordinary numbers, and now we're seeing these very strong quits numbers. While at the same time, we're still down whatever the number is from peak 3.5 million jobs. It's not showing up uh, in the unemployment rate and the U3 rate. It's showing up in some alternate methods of uh, of labor underutilization, and also uh, clearly in things like uh, folks leaving the labor market. You know, how valid are these uh, benchmarks that the Fed is trying to uh, optimize for on the labor side? Yeah, no, they're they're only as valid as you know as they as they are, right? I mean, the reality is at any given time, there's always some sort of funky dynamics. Clearly, the pandemic has, has thrown us a, a very large wrench into anybody's labor market analysis. But I think you know you sort of have to piece it all together by right. taking a holistic approach as you as you do. So let's start by saying, okay, look at the there's an unemployment to pop, employment to population ratio. That's probably the the cleanest measure of how the labor market is doing at any given time, right? You don't have to worry about the labor force participation and how people classify themselves and things of that nature. Just right. how many people have jobs relative to the total population? That number is at 59.5% uh, in December. That's 170 basis points shy of its February 20, February 2020 cycle peak. And so that number, the fact that that number is so shy is telling you that the labor market may not be as tight 
as the wage dynamics as sort of the fear out there is. But then you have to go back and look at the actual labor force participation rate. You know, there's a couple that haven't budged in a really long time, uh, namely the work labor force participation rate for prime working age individuals that uh, the 25 to 54 year old labor force participation rate has been stuck at 81.9% since July. And then the 55-year-old labor force participation rate, this is the great retirement, the great resignation, or or not necessarily the resignation, but it's the people who retired early, right? Don't want to risk their lives at work, you know, making, you know, whatever bucks an hour. You know, that labor force participation rate has been stuck at 38 and a half really since last December. Not not like like almost a calendar year. And so there's clearly something going on in the labor market that says not as many people want to work and need or or need a job as as they have in prior years, right? We know household net worth is up about $18 trillion relative to its five-year trend line through 2019. There's a lot more wealth on consumer balance sheets. You know, there's about 2.6 trillion in excess savings according to our calculations. So there may be a lot of households who just don't need to work as much or people who are nearing retirement are looking at their 401ks and saying, hey, let's just hit the bid on this or sorry, you know, lift off on this. And so I do think those labor market dynamics mean something today because ultimately what it means is that the economy is in fact closer to full employment and full employment again is a cyclical dynamic. It's not this structural static number. According to today's economy, we are close to full employment. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the second chart I want to bring up, which is the, uh, the employment cost index relative to the quits rate. Uh, we saw the quits rate uh, data tick down 20 basis points um, in the in the December note number, but it's still you know it's just off an all time high of 3.4 percent. But that number is, continues to drag up the employment cost index, which is the broadest measure of wages and benefits uh, and salaries and things like that in the economy. That 4 percent number in Q4 is the fastest growth rate we've seen since Q4 of 2001. All right, like that's 20 years ago. I mean, I'm guessing a third of people watching this weren't even born in 2001. You know, <laughs> or some some large percentage based on their uh, their interest in the cryptocurrency market. So, you know, this is a big deal. Like, irrespective of whether or not it's real or not, it's occurring. And the Fed and, and the fact that it's occurring, the longer it persists, the more likely it is these dynamics start to get entrenched and they start to feed upon themselves and compound at higher levels. Right? Compounding at four percent wages is very different than compounding at two percent wages. You know, compounding at I don't know seven percent inflation or somewhere between five and seven percent is very different than compounding at two to three percent. If you talk about where will prices be three, four, five, six, seven years from now? Yeah, uh, so many important points there, Darius. There's something that you touched on a number of times, and I wanted to give it a little bit of a deep dive here because I think it's an important one. You've talked about financial conditions. You've talked about uh, euro dollar market things like uh, OIS, LIBOR, Fed spread, uh, TED spreads, all of these measures uh, of tightness uh, in these uh, in in financial conditions. This is very much, I think, something that institutional investors think about a great deal. Retail investors, not so much. Give us the 50,000-foot overview on financial conditions. First of all, what they are, the intro, the context, and then where they are now. Yeah. So, financial conditions, I guess the simplest way to think about it is how easy is it for consumers and businesses to obtain leverage? Right. Is it is it easy for companies to go to the, the debt market and, and sort of ask borrow or ask creditors for more money, more money, money to roll over uh, existing debt, money to finance uh, new projects, new M and A things of that nature? Is it easy for consumers to go sort of you know go to their bank and, and take on more debt, more leverage? And that's uh, you know so there's all sorts of measures in terms of how we track financial conditions. But I guess the most sort of main measures that most people look at would be obviously the price of the stock market. It would be the level of volatility of the stock market. VIX is probably most most commonly cited indicator. It would be level of credit spreads. That's probably the most 
uh, direct uh, consequence of the tightening or easing financial conditions in terms of the additional amount um, of, of lenders uh, charge borrowers relative to treasuries, relative to similar maturity treasuries um, to take on that credit risk. And then the U.S. dollar tends to be a, a, a decent feature in a lot of financial conditions models as well. So, you know, we add it all up. You know, we've seen volatility rise. We've seen credit spreads rise, albeit marginally. We've seen, obviously, a, a pretty big, strong move in the dollar in recent months. Uh, and then lastly, obviously, we've just seen our first 10% correction in the stock market since fall of 2020. And so very clearly, financial conditions are tightening at the margins. And as long as they continue to tighten, it's going to slow growth. So the Fed has accomplished some of its you know, policy tightening already just by talking. You know, for guidance has already tightened monetary policy. It's already tightened financial conditions. Yeah. They do need to follow through with what's out there in the market in terms of uh, the pricing in, in euro dollar curves and OIS curves, because if they don't, it'll enact, it'll it'll effectively be an easing. If you know if we get to March and they don't hike interest rates in March, that's a 25 basis point rate cut, according to the market. And that would loosen financial conditions and actually shoot themselves in the foot and go backwards relative to their uh, their, their their desire to tighten to, to effectively bring inflation down and ultimately cool the labor market and, and cool the economy uh, to a to a degree to a to a finely threaded degree uh, that allows inflation to get back into to their target. Boy, it's a very fine thread indeed. Uh, we should say uh, DXY U.S. dollar index now uh, closing out the day here. It looks right around 96. Uh, it up, is up materially uh, from yeah. where it was 12 months ago, trading at around uh, 90 and change. So uh, a big move there in dollar. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So let's talk one other question for you, Darius, something I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, I mentioned this uh, story coming out of Eastern Europe, the United States committing uh, 3,000 additional troops uh, in the wake of the Ukraine crisis. Uh, what are your thoughts? How do you think about those sorts of uh, kind of outlier scenarios? How do you attempt to factor them into your model? And how are you looking at this one? Yeah, so I'll start by saying you know, investors have to have their edge. My edge is not on understanding geopolitical dynamics. Um, it's certainly not on understanding all the ins and outs of the options market. My edge is on you know sequencing economic data, see, and, and building kind of metric models that are accurate and forecasting growth and inflation, and ultimately front running what policymakers are going to do about those changes. So that that's my edge, and ultimately what asset markets are likely to do about all of that. That's my edge, and so sticking to my edge, you know, we built a system, a robust system of tools at Forty Two Macro that allows us to sort of dynamically adjust and and, and one dynamically observe big changes in sort of the market regime, big changes in the in the, in the economic regime. Um, you know, I think we've built some pretty good models that, that give us a leading edge on that. So that's my long-winded way of saying, hey, if this stuff actually matters, it'll show up in one of these tools. You know, it'll show up in our market regime now casting process. It'll show up in our, our macro regime now casting process in terms of what the economy is doing. If something like crude oil, you know, rallying tremendously really starts to have an impact on consumer spending. And it, I would argue it already has. I got a couple more charts I'll pull up before we uh, before we wrap up. Uh, the the chart showing real disposable personal income per capita in the month of December. So you know we got this data last week, and you know certainly didn't make enough headlines in my opinion. Um, obviously we got the GDP print and the, all that stuff is making a lot of noise, but this real disposable personal income per capita number contracted at three percent on an annualized basis in December. 
like that, that's a big deal. Like, I mean, like the, we're so numb to these numbers in COVID, but like that'd be like, oh my God, this is a recessionary print. That's a that's the biggest, steepest contraction we've seen since June. And that had impact in terms of slowing consumer spending. Consumer spending, real PCE, if I got that chart as well, um, that contracted at a minus 12% SAR in the month of December. So effectively, the, the consumer spending, brought the broadest measure of consumer spending on a real basis contracted at a 12% annualized pace. I mean, that'd be one of the deepest recessions ever um, if we actually saw that um, on a quarterly basis, on a multi-quarter basis. And so that's a, that's a big deal. Um, in terms of you know the bite to consumer spending that we're already seeing, and this has nothing to do with Omicron. I mean, Omicron certainly slowed um, services consumption; it was up at a one percent SAR. But really, the big tail um, in terms of this this, this week, these week data are the goods consumption component contracted yeah. at a thirty two percent annualized pace. You know, I've been talking about this again. Another thing we've been discussing for a while in this program: there's an overconsumption of goods in the U.S. economy. You know, I've made the same tired joke many times, but. You know, when I sit at my desk all day, I have, I have seven pairs of these super comfortable, like, you know, kind of like yoga style Nike shorts. You know, they're really awesome. I love them. They're seven pairs. You know, I'm not trying to run my washing machine, you know, five times a week. And so, you know, I'm not going to buy an eighth pair. There's only, there's only seven days in a week. You know, and so how many people have bought a washing machine, a car, a house, and don't need a second washing machine, a second car, a second dishwashing machine? Yeah. I think that overconsumption of goods, particularly any goods, the big ticket items associated with the housing market dynamics. Yeah. That stuff is, there's going to be a hangover there. And yep. we're already kind of starting to see it from a macro perspective, right? Go back to the last two GDP prints. Inventories is more than, you know, 70% of both of those numbers. Yeah, it's, Q3, this, Q4. it's this phenomenon of demand getting pulled forward. And by the way, at the at the darkest point in the crisis, I couldn't buy more uh, Adidas running pants because they were sold out in my size. Uh, <laughs> but listen, I wanted to touch on something here because I want you to get in uh, at least one question from our viewers today because we've got some good ones here. Uh, yeah, talking about... Your edge and what's right in your wheelhouse. This one comes to us from Mashu N from the exchange. And the question is if payroll numbers disappoint on Friday, can we expect to see longer end yields fall off? And then he has a follow up for that. Uh, and how do you think gold will react? Yeah, I don't think, I think payrolls are a sideshow at this point. They, they've been for a while now. It's all about the tightness in the labor market, as evidenced by the, uh, labor, the, the labor force participation rates. And it's also about the wage dynamics. Will we see an acceleration in wages? And if we saw an acceleration in wages, I, quite frankly, I think the declining payrolls number actually might inflate wages if, in terms of reducing supply from the overall supply demand imbalance uh, that we're already seeing in the labor market. So, to me, I think wages going up is the real big story that could potentially shock markets relative to what we uh, see in price in the markets today. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know anybody at the BLS, but it definitely is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a more than reasonable probability. Hey, one more because it's right in your wheelhouse. Uh, this one comes to us uh, from Vikas Lakota from the Real Vision site. And the question is, any thoughts on the impact of high natural gas and oil prices on a rate uh, of cooling of inflation and the expected Fed response to it? Yeah, so I, uh, I want to be specific about this and I'll bring it up next week. But you know, in terms of inflation, right? So inflation is a percentage change statistic, right? So you need the base effect. You need to understand what the comparative base is. You need to understand what the sequential momentum is. So if the sequential momentum is less than the base effect changes, the sequential momentum and the base effect, the year-over-year -year statistic will go down. And so we're, you know, we're kind of getting to the point in the, in the calculus in terms of the matrix where the sequential momentum, even if it's sustained, will catalyze, even if it's sustained at these you know, obviously very aggressive rates, will, will, will still perpetuate its declining year-over-year -year rate of change as a function of the sequential momentum we observed in the models last year. 
right? Like we had this massive run up in the first half of last year in a lot of inflation statistics, you know, go back to that. Remember that, that April inflation report that was like, bang, shot across the bow. Um, yeah. We saw it again. I want to say in the June inflation report again, we saw it in the October inflation report as well. well it was just transitory then, Darius. Yeah, no, transitory. exactly. <laughs> this, this is back when transitory itself was building momentum still. Um, it's obviously gone by the wayside. Yeah. So transitory was transitory. Yeah, transitory was transitory. You're absolutely right, man. So yeah, that, that's uh, that's a long way way of saying it. yes. Even if we continue to see these prices rise, they have to rise at a faster rate than what was observed last year in order for inflation to continue accelerating. If they rise at the same rate, then obviously inflation will stay the same. And if it rises at a slower rate, then the year-over-year statistics will start to decelerate. So it's it's not mathematically impossible, but it's very it's going to be very difficult for us to sustain, um, you know, sort of these year-over-year rates of change in inflation, particularly as we get into February, March, April. Yeah. Hey, Darius, this has been a great conversation. I know you had a lot to get in here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again today. Ash, you're the man, bro. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Darius. And thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maggie will be here tomorrow with Michael Guyad. As always, the conversation continues on Real Vision's The Exchange. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.